Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Dinner with Jesus. In this series, we've found many instances in the Bible where Jesus was around food. Today, we look at Jesus having dinner with a prominent Pharisee as lead pastor David Fossil challenges us to a cooking contest where we're given four ingredients to prepare a dish for God. Listen as we get some pointers that will help us get our lives ready for God and receive massive rewards. Grab your study guide and turn in your Bibles to page 1046, page 1046 or Luke chapter 14 if you brought your own Bible. As you're turning there, you guys know this, some of the top shows on TV nowadays are cooking shows. And uh, I just kind of real quickly Googled top-rated uh, TV shows and cooking shows or food shows on TV. Let me real quickly, uh, Hell's Kitchen, uh, Top Chef, uh, the one that our family loves to watch, Cutthroat Kitchen, that's a fun one. Uh, my daughter li- likes to watch Guy's Grocery Games. Then you got all the, the kind of dessert ones, Cake Boss and Cupcake Wars and Chopped and you know, uh, you know, dives, drive-ins and dives, or di- diners, drive-ins and dives. It just goes on and on and on, all these different cooking shows, right? Now, I'm sharing this with you because today we're going to play our own cooking show, and it is called, put it up there, Dinner with Jesus. Here's how Dinner with Jesus works, right? Jesus comes out, and he's going to give you four ingredients to prepare a dish for God. Four ingredients. And if you prepare a dish that God enjoys, by the way, it'll be judged by the 12 disciples, right? So they're going to judge it. And and if God enjoys it, then what you're going to get, you don't get a cash prize like these other shows. What you get, you get a more fulfilling life here on earth and you get all kinds of massive rewards in heaven. Okay. So you excited? You ready to play? Some of you guys like, this is lame, whatever. Luke chapter 14, (laughs) I'm going to give you four ingredients, Uh, and we're kind of having a little fun with this and and this series, uh, looking at all kinds of stories with food, but what we're going to go over today, literally think of four ingredients, you're going to prepare a dish called your life for God, and if he likes it, you get massive rewards. Luke chapter 14 is where it starts, verses 1 through 4, here's what we read. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Now, it's not right there, but you have to kind of read between the lines the story really starts at synagogue, at church. We, we know that because of the first two words, one Sabbath. Sabbath was the day that all the Jews would go to synagogue. They, that was their church time. And, and, and the idea is that apparently Jesus, Rabbi Jesus from Nazareth, from Galilee, he's the guest teacher. He's the guest preacher that day at synagogue. So, so Jesus gets up at synagogue and he does his thing. He does his lesson. He does his teaching. And right after, they don't go to Applebee's or Outback or Chinese. One of the Pharisees says, hey, come over to my house. We'll have lunch. Right. But notice it's not just any old Pharisee. It's a prominent Pharisee. And notice that he seems to have ulterior motives. I'm not just having him over for dinner. He's going to be carefully watched by me and by the rest of the Pharisees. 
by this point in time, if you've been at church any amount of time, you know that the Pharisees were a group of religious people that weren't too kind or didn't look too fondly on Jesus. They didn't like him because he was messing things up for him. And so by chapter 14 in the Gospel of Luke, they've gone beyond trying to figure him out. They're trying to rub him off now. They're trying to bump him off. They're trying to get dirt on him. And so they, they invite him not to be kind. They invite them to try and get something on him. They literally, from what we can tell at this point, are literally coming up with plans to assassinate him. Right? So they go, it's kind of the old adage, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Let's get this Jesus over to the house, see if he screws up, and then we can use it against him. Now, how does he do that? How do they do that? Well, I'll explain a little bit more when we get to our second ingredient. But I want you to notice that as Jesus comes into the banquet, as he comes into the, to this Pharisee's home for, for a meal, uh, he, he bumps into a guy that says is suffering from dropsy. Now, some translations will tell you what that is. It was, it's not a condition we really have in our culture anymore because of medication. We're able to take care of it. But it's basically someone who either has a heart ailment or a kidney ailment. And what happens is it causes your body to retain fluid or retain water. And it's very, very painful. And it's not very fun to look at. And the key point that you have to understand from this guy is that the Pharisees considered people with dropsy to be unclean. Or not accepted by God. You see, here's how the system of the Pharisees worked. If you were rich, God accepted you and liked you. If you were poor, God didn't accept you. He didn't like you. If you have a really great job and drive a nice car, God likes you. If you don't have a really good job and you don't drive a good car, it means that God doesn't like you. If you're healthy, God likes you. If you're sick and not very healthy, if you've got dropsy, God doesn't like you and you're unclean. And I point that out because this guy with dropsy in this condition would never under any condition at any point in time been invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee for dinner ever. So the question right away you should have as you start reading the story is, well, then why is he there? And the answer is very, very simple. We've already alluded to it. Um, he's bait for Jesus. It's horrible to say, but that's what they're, they're using him as bait. Okay, let's put the guy right at the entrance and see what Jesus does. If he walks by him and doesn't help him, then we can accuse him of not caring about people. If he does help them and help him and he does heal him, now he's breaking the Sabbath law. No matter what he does, we got him. Jesus don't care what they're trying to do. He doesn't care what their ulterior motives is. He sees someone who's hurting. He sees someone who's suffering. And you see what I've highlighted at the bottom. So he goes out of his way. He heals him. And then he sends him on his way. In other words, I don't want you to sit down with these punks to have lunch. Just go home. You know, get a Subway sandwich on the way out. You're healed. That's the good news, right? Ingredient number one, if you want to prepare a dish, a life that is pleasing to God, help people, love people care for people over and over and over again we are reminded throughout scripture that people matter 
to God. And the way that God helps other people is through you many times. Let me show you a couple of verses. Larry, let's put it on the screen. John chapter 13. Jesus says, you want to know how people are going to know that you're my followers, you're my disciples? If you love and you care for people. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, here's what I want you to do. Carry each other's burdens. In other words, if someone has an issue or a problem or they're discouraged, help carry it for them. Now, if again, if you've been in church or youth group or Sunday school any amount of time, you've heard this already. We've already heard that we're supposed to care for people. So, but I want what I want you to do is I want you to think back last week. Think back in the Rolodex of your week. Teenagers are like, what's a Rolodex? <laughs> think about your phone last week and what appointments you had, what you did. How many people did you help? How many people did you encourage? How many people did you put an arm around and and tried to motivate them and get them going back in the right direction? Think people that are lonely. Think people that are financially strapped. Think people that are going through a divorce or some sort of family crisis. Think people that are grieving. Think people that are unemployed. Think people like this guy that has dropsy and they're sick. They're literally unhealthy. How many people in the last seven days have we helped? One of my favorite stories published by Chicago Tribune, reported by Chicago Tribune a couple years back. Let me just read what the article says. It seems that nearly all the boys in Mr. Alter's class at Lake Elementary School are bald. They have shaved their heads. Is this a fad? Not really. Ian Gorman, one of their classmates, had a cancerous growth removed from his intestine and is now undergoing chemotherapy. Ian opted to have his head shaved before his hair started to fall out in chunks. To his surprise, his male classmates decided to join him. The last thing we would want is for him not to fit in, to be made fun of, said 10-year-old classmate Kyle Hanslick. We wanted to make him feel better and not left out. Kyle uh, started to talk to the other boys in the class about shaving their heads and discovered that 12 of them thought it was a neat idea. Jim Alter, the teacher, was so inspired that he decided to have his head shaved too. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know what? You don't have to look very far to find people that are hurting, to find people that need your help and my help. Just got to pick up your chin and not be so consumed with what's going on in my life and just look around. The widow across the street that's not strong enough to take care of her lawn anymore. The, the co-worker who's having issues at home and, and with their spouse or with one of their kids. They're hurting. I know we're not in school, but guys, when you go back to school, that classmate that that just got, you know, mom moved out and dad doesn't want him. And so he's living somewhere else. It's all around us. So I want to beg you and encourage you. I can keep throwing verses at you, but ultimately ingredient number one, you might as well not move on unless you do ingredient number one. He says, when you leave those doors, you best look up and help somebody, love somebody, care for somebody. You can't help everyone. God doesn't ask you to do that. Just help whoever's coming in your life. Start there and do the best that you can. Now, ingredient number two, I'm telling you in advance, you know, every once in a while, there's an ingredient that doesn't taste very good, right? 
This is one of the ones that is difficult to understand. I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on, but it's crazy important. You see it on the screen right now. The exact same four or five verses that we already read. So I'm not going to reread them for you. I just want you to notice what I've highlighted, especially what I've highlighted in blue. Now, before I explain to you what's going on here, let me help you understand this. You want to know the major issue Jesus had with the Pharisees? He's constantly arguing with them. He's constantly fighting. You want to know the bottom line foundational issue Jesus has with the Pharisees? It's this. They constantly misinterpreted scripture. And when they misinterpreted scripture, they misapplied scripture and when they misapplied scripture, they messed it up for themselves and everyone else. Let me say it again. They didn't interpret scripture correctly. That meant they didn't apply scripture correctly. That meant they messed it up for everyone, including themselves. One of the issues that Jesus constantly was fighting with them about was the Sabbath thing. You go, what the heck is a Sabbath? It's one of the big commandments. It's one of the top 10. And here's what the Sabbath day commandment says. Jesus says, one day out of seven. One out of seven, I want it to be different for you guys. Here's what I want you to do. One out of seven, I want you to worship God, and I don't want you really to work much. I don't want you to work. So worship, go to synagogue, go to church, and don't work. That's it, right? Well, the 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 Pharisees thought, well, what, what does it mean not to work? Like you don't we instinctively know what that means? We instinctively knows what it not. They're like, let me help, let's help God out. Right. So they came up with all these extra meanings and extra laws for the Sabbath. I'm going to give you some actual laws that they gave their people. Ready? Here it goes. Law number one. You're not allowed to wear a heavy coat on the Sabbath on Sundays. You go, what? You're not allowed to wear a heavy coat. But we're going into the city and everyone knows when you go into the city, there's fog in San Francisco and it's always good to bring a jacket. You're not allowed to take a jacket. Why? Because you see, if you go into San Francisco and then the, the fog burns off and the sun's burning down and you decide to take the jacket off and you carry it, the act of carrying a heavy jacket equals work and you're breaking the law. True. Another one. You are not allowed, especially women, you're not allowed to look at a mirror on the Sabbath day. Why not? Because you look at the mirror and then you're going to see something you want to fix. There's some makeup you want to put on. There's some hair you want to fix. And that's considered work. You're not allowed to look at a mirror on the Sabbath day. And it went on and on and on and on. So in this first five verses, Jesus several times says to the Pharisees, really? Are you guys morons or something? I mean, he literally doesn't say that. That's me trying to help you. Are you really crazy? And they remained silent and had nothing to say. Ingredient number one, you want to please God? Ingredient number one, love people, help people. Ingredient number two, you better figure out a way to interpret correctly. You better interpret this correct because if you don't interpret it correctly, you will not apply it correctly. And if you don't apply it correctly, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Would you agree that there are a lot of people in our culture that misinterpret this book? Would you agree with that? Some people, a lot of people, I would hope, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. They don't do it on purpose. Some people do do it on purpose. Some people just having fun, like this one pastor I heard. Uh, this was years ago, back in the day when uh, pastors, part of their, their main job as a pastor was to visit everybody in the church. We don't do that as much in our culture, but 
he went and he was he was brand new at the church and he visited this one uh, this one uh, um, a lady at the church and uh, this couple and he went to their house knocked on their door rang the doorbell and they no one answered the door but you know how when you go to someone's house and you can hear their inside so he kept ringing and she didn't come to the door so he thought he'd be funny he got a piece of paper and he wrote down Revelation chapter three verse twenty and then he wrote it out behold I stand at the door and knock. If anyone had heard my voice and opened the door, I would come in and dine with him and he with me. He kind of smiled, signed his name, put it in the door. The very next Sunday, that same piece of paper appeared in the offering and she had written something on it. Genesis 3.10. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. So this is two people misinterpreting scripture for their own use and just having fun with it. But again, let me say this. When you twist scripture on items that are important, you're going to be in trouble. Now, again, I'm going to I'm going to dig a little deep here and some of you might yawn a little bit. I'm telling you what I'm going to go over right now is some of the most important thing that some of us need to add to our life. Let's put the next slide up here. What I'm talking about is what is normally called at school hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the task. It's the study of interpreting scripture to determine the original meaning of the author. Now, why is that so important? Let me show you why it's so important. Just two verses. I could give you a dozen verses. Let me show you two. Uh, in Second Timothy, Paul writes Timothy and he says, how do I explain this to you, Timothy? Um, here's what you need to understand. The Bible... It, yeah, I know it was written by 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 humans. I, I, I get that. How do I say it? It was. um. It was God breathed. It was inspired. Yeah, I know. And then Peter says it a little bit differently. He says, yeah, I, I know man kind wrote this book, but it, it wasn't it wasn't their own initiative. It was more. It was more like they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't so much their words. It's like they were speaking from God. You see, there's a reason we don't call this the words of Moses or the words of Paul or the words of Luke. We call this the word of God. One of the most key theologies and doctrine that we hold to as a church, that this is not any ordinary book. It is literally God trying to communicate to you. So if you misinterpret what he says and misapply what he says, you could end up doing something completely the opposite of what he wants you to do. That's why this ingredient is so important. Now, I know what some of us instinctively do. Well, that's why you're here, right? I mean, that's that's your job. I I come on Sundays and and I get myself a, a Bible meal, right? Honestly, I love what I do. I'm your Bible chef. Once a week, you get to come to church and I cook up a a nice Bible meal for you, right? But here's what you need to understand. By the way, I love it. It's one of the things I most enjoy about my job. I would do it for free. Don't tell the board that because they're liable to put the money in the building program. But I love doing this. But here's what you need to understand. If the only Bible food you're getting is on Sunday morning, you're malnourished spiritually. You have to learn on your own to make yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
You have to learn to interpret it and to apply it by yourself on your own to self feed yourself. And if you're not, I'm telling you, you're spiritually malnourished. You're not getting enough food. Now, again, uh, by the way, in my my library, I got two of about a dozen books on this topic of hermeneutics. This is one of my professors, Grant Osborne, the, the hermeneutical spiral. This other one by a guy called Bray, Biblical Interpretation. I just want to notice a couple things. It's thick and there ain't no pictures in it. It's heavy stuff, right? But important. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this book and I'm going to summarize it for you in four minutes. I'm going to give you the big picture, but it's important. There's three things you need to know. Let's put them on the screen. What is the genre of the scripture? What is the type of literature? You go, what does that mean? It just means this. When you read the Bible, it's written in different forms of literature. Some of it's poetry, book of Psalms. Some of it's historical narrative, the book of Joshua. Some of it's gospels. We're in the gospel. Some of it's apocalyptic literature, book of Revelation. You don't read and interpret the book of Revelation the same way you read and interpret the book of Psalms, right? When someone says roses are red and violets are blue and yada, yada, you know they're trying to be flowery. They're trying to be nice. They're not asking you to take them literally, right? That's poetry when you read epistles is completely different than when you read proverbs one of the biggest mistakes christians make you want me to tell you and it's about genre it's one of the huge mistakes that many christians make we read the book of proverbs like they're actually promises from god they're not promises from god at all not even close read the book of of a gospel of Matthew, that's a pro- you got promises in there. Read the book of Romans, you got promises in there. Read the book of Proverbs, there's no promises in there at all. It's wisdom literature. Wisdom literature as a genre means to give you general principles of truth. General principles of truth. So for example, there's a proverb that says, the righteous will live longer than the unrighteous. Now, if you take that as a promise, you're going to be disappointed in God because you're going to see like this week. I saw that some Nazi guard from Auschwitz is like 108 years old. Well, there's an evil, evil man that look how long he's lived. And then in the same week, you'll hear of some young couple and the dad got in an accident and he left a widow with three kids. Whoa! it didn't seem like the the righteous live longer than the unrighteous in that situation, did it? No, because the Proverbs are general principles of truth. So the first thing you do when you start reading scripture is what type of literature is it? And whatever literature it is, it will then begin to give you an idea. How do you interpret it? The second one is context. What's the historical context? What's the biblical context? What's the cultural context? Let me give you a very personal example. Uh, many of you know that I grew up in Spain. I, grew, I lived there till I was 18 years old in Barcelona. The minute you know that about me, you actually begin to understand me more. Um, I am culturally more Spanish and European than I am American. You just can't tell because my English sounds American. But I am very much so, and my family is very much so, Spanish. I had a situation with my dad a while back. My parents still live in Spain. They're missionaries in Spain. Um, they're supported by this church. They've been there going on 46 years. They've been there for a long, they're Spanish. 
and they live and act like Spanish people, right? They come back here and they do things that we don't do here, right? For example, one thing we do in Spain, not just in church, in all of culture, when you see some guys shake hands, that's it. But if you see someone from the opposite sex or ladies, you always, always, you don't shake hands. That's considered to be rude. You kiss them on either cheek. You kiss them on either. And if you don't do that, that is considered to be rude. So a while back, they're in church, right? After church, dad is in the church lobby kissing all the women. (laughs) And I'm like, dad, you come across like a missionary player. You can't do that. You know, and then you have your little man purse from Europe. I mean, no, you can't do this. Well, that's what we do in Spain. You're not in Spain. This is the Bay Area. Someone's going to punch you. Now, that's a very small, cultural, contextual issue. Do you think understanding Jewish culture matters when you read this book? You better believe it. Remember last week, the study of Levi? We studied that women that wear their hair down, like the woman who dried the feet of Jesus, the only women that did that were prostitutes. Do you think that added to the understanding of what's going on in that story? You better believe it. So here's my point. When you're reading scripture, not only what kind of literature is it, but what's the context? What's going on in in culture? What's going on around the passage is important. And then the last one, and I don't want to make a big deal about this, but the Bible was written in Hebrew and in Greek. And sometimes the Hebrew and Greek, it matters, right? Now you say, well, do I, do I got to like start doing an online class in Greek? No, you can trust your English translation. But here's what I want to challenge you to do is this. The Bible can be read as a devotional book. That's wonderful. But it'll make a greater impact on your life if you study it. If you study it. And what I would suggest, you do not have to run out and figure out what these books are and get them all. You don't have to do that. But I'm going to give you a suggestion and I'm going to I'm going to keep hammering this home until everyone gets one. Okay, you absolutely need to get a study Bible. You need a study Bible. This is the top selling study Bible in the world. It's called the NIV study Bible. And when you open it up anywhere, you open it up. There is more explanation at the bottom of the page as there is text at the top of the page. What you have here in terms of research and material and study and study tools is more than pastors had 200 years ago. And guess what? All the notes help you do. They're talking about genre, context, and language over and over and over and over and over again. Why is this important? Last verse, and I know I've spent a little time here. Second Timothy 2.15, do your best. And I guess my question to you is, are you? Do your best to present yourself to God as one that is approved. How do I get approved by God? A worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Ingredient number one, love people, care for people. Ingredient number two, you better learn how to interpret this book on your own. If you're leaning on only Dave or your small group leader, it's going to get you in trouble at some point in time. Okay. Uh, Ingredient number three, I don't have it on the screen. Let's just read Um, Luke chapter 14, verse seven. Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. He told them this story, this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding, 
Don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be humiliated and you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place or seat so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better seat, to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. And here comes the ingredient in verse 11. For those who exalt themselves or are prideful will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let me explain it this way. In our culture, when you go to a wedding, normally you have an assigned table. I'm at uh, round table number six. It's over there. I'm at round table number 15. It's over there. I'm at round table number three. I'm right over here. We normally are assigned a seat, right? Do any of you, any of us ever go to a wedding reception and think to ourselves, I don't want to sit at any of the round tables. What I want to do is I want to sit at the long rectangle table that's up on stage in the front of the room. Anyone ever do that? No. Why? Because instinctively, we know that the round tables are for the guests and the long rectangle table that's up on stage. That's for who? That's the wedding party. And the bride and the groom get to sit in the middle. Why do the wedding party get the nice seats? Because they're the most honored guests. The bride and the groom are the most honored guests. They that's how we do it in their culture. I don't know how they did it, but Jesus was just watching and he could just tell you guys are a bunch of cocky, prideful people. Essentially, you're going up on stage and sitting up on the long rectangle table and you're not part of the wedding party. Ingredient number one, help others. Ingredient number two, interpret correctly. Ingredient number three, choose to be humble. Choose to be humble. Let me just real quickly give you what humility looks like. True humility is seeing myself as God sees me. Now, this is good and bad because he sees all my garbage and nastiness. But he also loves me and loves you enough and cares for you and values you that he gave his son, Jesus, to die for you. And he gives you the Holy Spirit to guide you. So it's I feel really, really good about myself, but I'm also be true about myself. True humility is revealed by how I treat others, especially people that are different than you. Like they're a different age. I read a sociologist once that said that the most mature societies or immature, depending on how you look at it, is can be dictated by how you treat the elderly in your society. And societies that mistreat the elderly are not very mature as societies. Let me just say um, it best not happen in this church. I know we are a church that's a little bit younger and partially that's just our style or the music. But we have elderly among us and just because they're retired and just because they broke their hip last year and, and, and just because they, they, uh, they, they, they aren't in the workforce um, doesn't mean they are not incredibly valued members of this church. Okay, it's very important. In fact, they've been around the block a few more times than the rest of us and we would do well to listen and to glean some insight and wisdom about what life and what Christianity is all about. How you treat the elderly is going to say an awful lot about whether you are humble or prideful as a person. How you treat young people, how you treat poorer people than you, how you treat people that are not as educated as you. Do you come across like, well, you dummy? Or do you treat them with respect? How you treat other people is very simple. It will reveal, are you a humble person? Are you prideful? Are you cocky? True humility is also refined through adversity. 
When you have hard times, it knocks you off your pedestal and you, you learn, I don't got it all figured out, right? Here's the problem with humility or the flip side, pride. It's very hard to self-diagnose. Have you ever gone to a small group and the small group leader goes, okay, we're going to go around the circle, just share something we want to pray for you for. Have you ever had anybody in your group say, pray for my pride? I pretty much think I'm better than all the rest of you. Just pray for my... <laughs> no one ever admits that they struggle with pride. Ever, right? And even if you say, I'm, I'm a really humble person, even that sounds prideful, doesn't it? Like, I'm more humble than you are, right? Here's what I want to do. We're going to take a little tangent. I'm going to try and help you determine... If pride is maybe an issue that you need to start thinking about working on and, and work on adding some humility. I found a study uh, or really a little quick test called the PQ or the pride quotient. Now, before we put it up there, here's what I need you to do. It's yes or no answers. All you have to keep track of is yes. If you answer yes to any of the main points, yes to any of the main points, I just want you to keep track like with your fingers or something. If you're embarrassed, you know, do it like this so the person can't just... <laughs> Keep track of your yeses, right? If you think you're going to be really smart and keep it in your brain, then do it, right? I'm going to ask you more or less what your total yeses was at the end. You ready? Here we go. Let's put it on the first screen. Count your yeses. I enjoy being the center of attention. I think I deserve the best. I like to talk about my job, my kids, my vacation, my house. You get the point. I find it difficult to admit when I'm wrong. I seldom pass a mirror without looking at myself. I think most people, listen to this, I think most people's lives would be better off if they lived and thought like I do. In other words, you're so messed up because you're not doing what I'm doing. My feelings are easily hurt. One more screen. I get frustrated and impatient with other people's mistakes. I don't feel I get enough credit or appreciation for all I do. I'm bothered, even offended, when I do something nice for someone and I don't receive a thank you from them. I don't really have a lot of time to help others. And the last one, I'm pretty certain the person next to me needs to work on their pride more than I do. <laughs> okay, now, hopefully you counted. How many of you would be brave enough to say you got four or more? Go ahead and put them up, four or more. Okay, for those of us who got four or more, pride slash humility is something we need to kind of reconsider and look at. If you have one yes, it shows the presence of pride in your life. Just one. If you have zero yeses, it means you struggle with lying. And we will deal with that <laughs> on another Sunday. You know, when people talk about pride, one quick last thing. Everybody always likes to quote the verse in uh, Proverbs that talks about pride going before destruction. Everyone always quotes that verse. You know the passage in the Bible that most catches my attention when it comes to pride? It's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. Isaiah, chapter 14, right in the middle of the chapter, it tells us why and how the greatest angelic being ever created, his name was Lucifer somehow was transformed and became Satan. It's Isaiah 14. How did Lucifer, one of the greatest angels ever, become our greatest enemy, Satan? You know what the answer is? It's pride. Pride 
turned Lucifer, a great angelic being, into Satan. Here's the thing about pride. It takes people who are really nice and really kind and really loving and really fun to be around. And it makes them ugly. It makes us ugly. Just have the courage to admit all of us at times in our life can struggle with this. And what I need you to understand is the third key ingredient to be pleasing to God is choose to be humble. Why? Because his son was humble to the point of death on a cross. He's given us an example to follow. The last one, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because my time's almost up. The last ingredient is about generosity. If you still have your Bibles open, just the last couple verses. Then Jesus said to his host, when you, when you have a luncheon, a dinner, a party, do, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do so, they may invite you back. And, and so you will be repaid. When you give a banquet or party, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, here's a good example of hermeneutics, of interpreting Scripture. Jesus isn't literally saying you're not allowed to have friends and family over for a barbecue. I mean, that would be stupid. It's not what he's literally saying. If you interpret the context in the passage correctly, the words in the parentheses I've added... To help us understand, do not invite just your friends, just your family. You know how it is. Throughout the year, I invite you a couple times to my house. You invite me a couple times to your house. By December 31st, we kind of add up and we go, it's pretty even. I pretty much fed them as much as they fed me. And that's not a bad thing. But what he's saying is when you have a party, it, when you're going to go out to eat with someone, don't only go out with the people that can pick up the bill at Applebee's. Maybe you should pick up the bill. Invite the poor and invite the lame and invite the cripple and invite the poor. Take care of them. Be generous. Be generous. Now, when we talk generosity, we normally think money, but it could be anything. It could be food. Like we're just talking, people love to eat. Share food with people. It could be your words. Be generous with your words. Don't be stingy when it comes to complimenting people. Give compliments freely. Say thank you freely. Motivate people. You know, encourage people with your words. It could be be generous with your time. Be generous with your stuff. If you have something that someone else could borrow and it's reasonable that they're not going to break it or something, let them borrow it. Be generous. Like I told you, my family, we do enjoy watching some of the cooking shows. And every, every show has a little bit of a, a little bit of an angle. And, uh, one of the shows that, that we watch with the, the cutthroat kitchen, they always like, they take someone's ingredient and replace it with something that doesn't work, right? So they're supposed to make a cake, for example, but they take away their sugar. And so the person's trying to struggle and figure out, how am I going to make a cake or how am I going to bake a dessert without sugar? And the end is, you know, normally their cake doesn't turn out that great. That's the point. And it's a game, right? The last 30 minutes haven't been a game. I mean, I tried to package it for you in a fun way. But I'm telling you, you are presenting a dish to God. It's called your life. And if you leave out any one of the ingredients, 
He's going to take a bite into your life. He's going to kind of go, it doesn't taste right. Here's how I want you to end. I, I want you to look at the screen. I want you to just reflect on the four ingredients. And I want you to identify which one of these ingredients have I not incorporated into my life enough. Which one have I not incorporated into my life enough? Let's pray. As heads are bowed or eyes are closed, I just want to give you 10 seconds. Whatever ingredient you identified, I want you to take a moment and talk to God about it. Ask him to give you the discipline, the strength to follow up and incorporate that into your life. Just take a couple moments and talk to God. Heavenly Father, I, I know that I've definitely enjoyed studying these stories about food and banquets and eating. And, but in the midst of all these meals, there are life lessons. And this one, especially this week, really struck me. As Jesus seems to be going in all these different directions, frankly, he's, he's not the nicest guest to have at a dinner party. But he speaks the truth to these Pharisees. And through his life and through his actions, he stands up for what is right. Father, teach us to look and to notice people that are hurting and help them. Father, help us be diligent at interpreting your word correctly. We live in a society that is, seems to be more interested in being politically correct than biblically accurate, and that's a problem. Father, all of us, all of us could work on not being so self-focused and prideful and instead of showing humility, we don't have it all together. Father, teach us to be generous. Help us not hoard what we have, but remind us that every good and perfect gift has been given to us by you. And one of the things you want us to do is when we're able to share it. Father, thank you for this lesson, how you spoke to me and every one of us this morning. Help us present a life to you that is pleasing to you and that tastes good. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. All God's people said. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.